Do you feel like you're the only young person who cares about your Catholic faith? Do you look around at mass and only see silver foxes? We're Jake and Kathy, a young adult married couple, and we're here to tell you, you're not alone. That's why it's time to get Truth Pops. You're going to get a podcast designed specifically for you, a young adult Catholic in a pop culture world. The countdown is on for Truth Pop. We'll connect Christ into culture. The show that brings you in where the magic happens. Welcome to The Writer's Room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host, Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And today I'm joined by Sif Pop writer, Robert. Hello. It's a, that's always fun saying. Like, I, I forget, like, but Sif Pop writer, Robert. Like, that's a, that's a fun thing to say. Just that's the main reason I became a Sif Pop writer, because it's so much fun <laughs> to say. Yeah, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening to this, you should just try to say that on Sif Pop writer, Robert. And, uh, as the other people are listening to you weird in the grocery store, just ignore them. <laughs> We write for SifPop.com, providing you with movie reviews, best ever challenges, and other interesting movie-related articles. So make sure you check out the website, SifPop.com, to keep up with those. Uh, on today's show, though, on the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, Mank. Uh, once we're done with this intro, uh, we'll uh, we'll be talking about that. That's coming out on Netflix on December 4th, which I know is a couple weeks away, but there's really just nothing else coming out this week. There's other stuff coming out that week. And, you know, since we're talking about Citizen Kane anyway today, uh, why not just lump the two together? And speaking of Citizen Kane, we'll be talking about our goats this uh, this week. Or this week. Citizen Kane, of course, and Goldfinger, because this was the month that 007 No Time to Die was supposed to come out. And I was like, well, there are some Bond movies that are considered goats, and let's go with the one that I think is the highest held. Uh, and so we did uh, Goldfinger. When we're done talking about that, we'll move on to the B-plot. We're going to answer uh, a question that Joseph had for us this week, uh, again, about uh, movie-watching experiences. And then uh, we'll wrap up with a spin-off quick recommend award from each one of us. But first, let's get a chance to know our writer this week. Robert, uh, we've done the whole... You know, what's your favorite movie? How do you get right involved in writing for hip hop? Things like that. So, Robert, we talk a lot about movies. Uh, what type of music do you listen to, though? Um, so I, I wrote down that I'm pr- probably a bad person to be asking this question because I'm so into stories, whether it's TV, movies, uh, books, that sort of thing, that I don't spend a lot of time like listening to and combing through music and developing like this this great taste or anything like that. I don't use this word often, but I'm pretty basic when, when it comes to my my music tastes. I like top 40 pop, but like from the 2010s when I was in middle and high school. Nice. So I, I have that I have that playlist on my Spotify. I also like classic rock, um, you know, 60s through 90s because that's what my dad listened to when I was growing up. And I just turns out that I like it, too. I've pretty much had the same music taste since middle school, and I don't know a lot of new bands or new music, but just other than that, a few artists I like are Taylor Swift, Imagine Dragons. Um, even though apparently they're the new Nickelback, I I don't <laughs> get it. But Bleachers is one that I I love all all of their albums. Um, one Direction, The Beatles. Um, <laughs> the thing is, I don't understand music, so and I <laughs> and I don't understand how like the messages people say through music. So if something is catchy to me. That's the way that I listen to it. Um, That's fair. So, like, I don't have deep music understanding or anything like that. I uh, mean, not every song has a message, right? Yeah, it's if something is catchy and I can enjoy listening to it with with my wife or people around, like it's it's that's basically the criteria. 
Uh, and lastly, I also do have a like a 16-hour playlist full of movie scores that I nice. I used to listen to during uh, while I was doing my homework. And I would listen to it like while I'm writing or doing my actual job. Thanks. So yeah, my favorite album, by the way, is probably the three scores for the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I I think for music, it's got to be like catchy or at least groovy or something like that. Like it's got to like musically interest me first. And then secondly, it has to like um, it like if it's going to be like an all timer for me, because if it's like, if it's just catchy or groovy, like I'll probably still listen to it. Um, but then like if it really wants to like be something that I put on repeat, then it's got to have like uh, lyrics that I think are at least cohesive. I mean, I mostly don't listen to music anymore. I, I mostly just listen to podcasts, but uh, um, but I still do like listen, listening to a lot of music. Yeah. And then so at the, when it, if it can have a, a good music and a good you know cohesive lyrics that's about it but if it happens to tell a story then that's just a pro it makes it a little bit extra special to me I, I'm, I'm pretty wide in variety i grew up listening to country i don't like country at all Ooh, though. that's the one um, that i'm totally never <laughs> never country it was just one of those that i, I listened to you know it was my parents put it on the car right. um, i won't listen to country um unless my wife just really wants to and i'm in a decent mood and i'll be like fine but i'll put in a podcast and probably or like i'm just not paying attention <laughs> um yeah uh, i don't really like rap uh i like like 90s rap like or like late 80s rap um like for some reason like i really love nwa but i think a lot of that is because i really love the movie straight out of compton and it gave me an understanding for what they were going for mm-hmm. and most most modern rap is just senseless uh but but rock is really my my strong suit probably uh alternative is what i listen to most uh but i'm a, also a big metalhead which you may not like know just looking at me. <laughs> no. Nope. When I say metalhead, I mean I'm not talking like Pantera Metallica. I actually kind of really hate Metallica, which is the cardinal sin for metalheads. <laughs> but uh but I'm really into like We Came as Romans or August Burns Red. August Burns Red is my favorite band of all time. Big fan of Muse. That's my other like really big one. So Nice. So uh so Robert, uh, another thing we're going to do here is uh we've done some what gives in the past and uh you know if if you're just tuning in for the first time essentially what gives was I would essentially pick on Robert for not liking movies that I love. And uh, I feel a little bit bad each time about doing it, but at least I didn't give you the one that I did with Ben about, I'm going to describe, describe a movie poorly and you have to guess it. (laughs) Uh, Robert, I feel, I feel like let's get, let's get a little redemption uh, with, with with that relationship here. And let's, uh, let's talk about, let's do like a sort of anti what gives, what are some movies that you love that I, that you would say you love like more than the average person. Are we calling this uh, what takes? What takes? Like the opposite sure. of what gives. <laughs> sure. Sure. <Okay>. What takes? <laughs> Number one, I feel like this has a pretty sizable cult following, but about time. I feel like I love that just about more than, more than anybody. Uh, I talked to Ben about that on his podcast. I talked to my dad about it on my own podcast. Uh, I'm not going to talk about too, talk about it too much here. Um, another one of the cult following that I mentioned quickly when we did my top whatever 20 movies on here is uh napoleon dynamite for some reason i just love it uh i haven't seen it in three four years and i haven't seen it for years before that but i can still quote just about every single line of that movie i was actually just thinking about it the other day thinking just like how many scenes i can remember off the top of my head i can remember a lot and they're all still gold in my own mind a couple recent ones will be like from last year i know a lot of people didn't really like the movie yesterday you know, it's kind of nonsensical when it comes to its world building and leaves a lot of questions. And But I don't really care about any of that because 
I really enjoy watching it. I really enjoy the the Beatles music in it. Um, I think Lily James and Himesh Patel have amazing chemistry. Um, I think it's really funny. I just I, I like Richard Curtis screenplays a lot, even Mamma Mia too. Uh, so pretty much any time that he writes a movie, uh, I'm there for it. And yesterday's no exception. Okay. Swiss Army Man. I'm not sure how, how many people or how people think about Swiss Army Man, but I really, really love that movie. That was your favorite movie of the year it came out, right? I don't remember, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was up there at least. I think I love the Harry Potter series as well, but I think this is Daniel Radcliffe's best performance. Silence. I've talked about that before, obviously, and on the contrary. Just want to give that a shout out because it's great. And then finally, another Daniel Radcliffe movie. I actually didn't do that on purpose is uh, What If? He's with... Um, Zoe Zoe Kazan 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 uh yeah yeah uh, I don't know how to say her name she's in the big sick Kazan Kazan however like you say her name I apologize Zoe but this movie is a lot of fun it's a great romantic comedy yeah um, Zoe's definitely listening so make sure you apologize <laughs> uh yeah she contacts me on Twitter every week after after we record this <laughs> I know you don't like romantic comedies but I do and I love this one a lot it's even worth checking out because you have Kylo Ren and Harry Potter are best friends and Kylo Ren is hilarious in this movie adam driver obviously he's like no no, no kylo ren <laughs> <laughs> the character of kylo ren no adam driver he's still kind of like in girls mode in this movie he's like nothing like the marriage story drama or like uh star wars type of thing he's just hilarious and it's it's a lot of fun cool i really liked silence when i watched it as well but it's a chore to sit through so i haven't done it again just because it's so long and it's it's a very slow movie. So it's I very need... slow, but there's stuff to digest in, in in every scene. Yeah, I need I need to I need to see that one again. I am with most people. I don't I don't like yesterday, but I'm also not a huge Beatles fan. Like I'm no more a Beatles fan than any other random person you pull off the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand their influence. I just don't particularly ever gravitate to listening to their music. I was very unfamiliar with a lot of their songs because you know they didn't play Twist and Shout or or help or any of the like Beatles songs that I would know. And so my, my roommate is a big Beatles fan. So it's a great movie for Beatles fan, not really for anybody else. Yeah. I think those are all interesting picks. I haven't seen the rest of them, the Swiss army man or the, uh, what if, or anything like that. I haven't seen the rest of them. Yeah. Uh, so as always got one last kind of, kind of silly or random question for you. And that's, uh, I think I know the answer to this actually, Robert, 2020 can't get any worth right, but let's just say, that it does and and the covid vaccine is a zombie apocalypse you know we're going straight up i am legend here and so and so all of a sudden there's a zombie apocalypse going on Mm -hmm. what would be your weapon of choice where are you getting you think you know the answer to this from i'm pretty sure you would have the uh the the like what what is it like a cricket palette that uh sean uses in Shaun of the dead (laughs) okay that's Um, that's where that's where i think i know the answer because i know you're such a big fan of that movie and that would be a perfect homage and it's like a practical weapon i mean are we going just by what i have in my house because i don't have any (laughs) yeah i think in my house I think, yeah, I think that's kind of the exception. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, obviously I'd have, you know, Humvee with a mini turret strapped on top. <laughs> right. Like, Woody yeah. Woody Harrelson like, uh, in Zombieland. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, obviously, like, I'm picking, you know, a, a mini gun that I can carry and like, or like, you know, a laser gun or anything like that, like a, a real working lightsaber. Like, like we're talking about things that exist and things like things that you could have accessible. Here, here's two answers. One going just by what I have in my house. I'm realizing right now there's not a lot of dangerous stuff in my house because I've got 
wiffle ball bats, but that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I could go uh, like a large kitchen knife. So that's my in-the-house answer. Other than that, I would go to Target or the nearest Dick Sporting Goods and pick up like an aluminum baseball bat because I know how to handle one of those. That's fair. I think I have a I have an aluminum baseball bat, so I think that would be my weapon of choice. Uh, in the shed in the back, I have an axe. But the problem with an axe is like you get one chance, and like then like you have to dig it out of their head mm-hmm. and all that. It's not. I mean, it's it's effective, but it's not practical for large hordes. And so and I wouldn't go a wood bat because that would break. I'd go with my aluminum bat. Here, I'm gonna revise my answer. Uh, again, stealing from Shaun of the Dead, I'm gonna open up all my Blu-rays and start throwing the Blu-rays like I throw the <laughs> records at the one zombie. <laughs> Just not the Lord of the Rings disc. Just not exactly not the Lord of the Rings disc. <laughs> Batman, <Nice>. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, said, I don't really have like anything either. So yeah, the uh, probably aluminum baseball bat would be my answer as well. Uh, but also, I live forty five seconds from a mall, like there driving distance. So like I and and there's a there's a Shields in that mall, which is like a you know sporting goods place. So like I'm pretty sure I could get something. Yeah. Because I would go immediately there. And maybe I'd just do Dawn of the Dead style and just camp out at the mall. Cool. Well, let's finally start talking about more movies in, in specific. Let's do... Uh, let, let's. We're going to start off here with Mank uh, as our coming attraction. Now, Mank is, uh, is coming out December 4th uh, on Netflix and in theaters. I think they are doing like early event screenings because I'm pretty sure I saw that Reed just scored tickets. So they might be doing like early access um, stuff like that. I don't think it's supposed to be like in theaters until December 4th though, like normally... And even then, I don't think it's probably going to be at Chains because, you know, Netflix and Chains right. don't super get along. But it does say it's supposed to be in theaters December 4th. It's definitely hitting Netflix December 4th. Uh, synopsis for this movie is uh, follows screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz's uh, tumultuous development of Orson Welles' iconic masterpiece, Citizen Kane. Which is, like, pretty broad, but I think, like, this is supposed to, like, span... A, a long period of time. Like, I mean, not like 20, 30 years, but this is not supposed to be like a singular event, right? Uh, from what I gather, it seems like you're probably right. Okay. I mean, I don't know how you can make this more specific and also, you know, trying to keep your cards close to your chest so you don't give away a movie. This was always supposed to be a Netflix original. This was never supposed to be a theatrical release. Because Fincher is a Netflix man now. Yep. So yeah, uh, Fincher directing this and uh, starring tons of people. We'll get into that in just a second. But uh Writer Jack Fincher, is that his brother, his son? No, it's his late father oh. um, who wrote the screenplay a long time ago. Man, and that's so touching. He's finally, yeah, he's finally making making the movie. It's the only thing. Like, if you click on Jack Fincher's IMDb page, it's literally his only credit. Mm. Robert, you clearly know more about this movie than I do. We're thinking about if this is going to be a theatrical release exclusively. Uh, how soon do you think you'd go get to see this? Do you think this would be opening weekend? Uh, do you think this would be matinee, save yourself a couple bucks? Would you get there? Uh, like wait till it's on a streaming service you already pay for uh, rent. That's in between that <laughs> uh, rent it yeah. when it comes out in home release or uh, you just not interested in seeing this movie. So the thing about this movie, it's like it does appeal to me because it's David Fincher and it's Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried. But it also doesn't necessarily appeal to me on a story and filmmaking level because I feel like I don't have the knowledge and appreciation and love for Citizen Kane for one thing and cinema history for another um, or just like that, that era in cinema history. Like, I feel like I need to read some books to, <laughs> to appreciate a movie like this. Um, but that being said, depending on the weekend, I would either see it opening weekend or 
wait for matinee because I would I would lean towards opening weekend just because of all how hot the takes would be coming in at a normal time that I feel like I would want to be on top of all that. Okay. Um, and I it's not like Tenet where I would go out of my way to mute everything on Twitter to avoid spoilers. So I'd just go see it opening sure. weekend probably. Well, and this is a bio biography, like you know, true. Spo- <laughs> it's hard to spoil a biography. Um, but if there's like, oh, you. By the way, Easy E dies at the end of Straight Outta Compton, <laughs> <laughs> and the Titanic sinks. Imagine that plot: Tarantino's Titanic, where it makes it home safely. <laughs> That's a movie I want to see. No, I man, I want to see that now. I'm not going to stop thinking about it the rest of this recording. But but somehow Jack still drowns. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Cool. Um, or he kills some hippies. <laughs> I want to see Tarantino's Die Hard on the Titanic. <laughs> Yeah, there it is. How did we get from talking about Mank <laughs> to Tarantino's Die Hard on the Titanic? I don't know. Woo. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. Um, yeah, I think I think I'm I'm with you. I'm in the matinee section here. I'm leaning towards like opening weekend, but I'm with you. I just don't have the appreciation for. I have the appreciation for like filmmaking and especially like this era of filmmaking right uh like i'm interested in anything that's set in hollywood you know like i'm, I'm mm-hmm. particularly big fans of you know obviously the nice guys which is a different section of hollywood um and uh and i think once upon a time in hollywood is great and um i love uh hell caesar i think is really good yeah, uh, so yeah. a- anything that has to do with uh with like hollywood especially the movie industry uh the artist i really love the artist um never saw it it's, I, I really like it. Um, it's really, really charming, really insightful, uh, really great. Singing in the rain. Can't not mention that. Just got to say it. Haven't seen it yet. It's a list of shame for me. Oh, I'm, I'm similar to you. I don't share the the love and fondness of Citizen Kane itself, but I do know and understand that there is a long, complicated history with Citizen Kane itself, like the making of the movie, because of essentially this screenplay was pretty much from my understanding and I might be wrong about this was loosely based off of real people at the time that tried to get Mm. the movie to not come out because everybody knew it was based about them because a newspaper corporation that pretty much dominates the conversation about what's going on and what's right and what's wrong. Um, I think that's a really fat. There's a really fascinating story there. Uh, I don't necessarily share, share the love and fondness of Citizen Kane itself, and I don't know that this is one that I necessarily feel like I need to rush to go see because it's on Netflix. I'm probably gonna fire this up like the day it comes out, maybe the day after, just because I like to stay on top of things um, if yeah. I if I can, especially on some of these like Netflix releases. Because if I don't get around to it now, I don't know when I will. Like I still haven't seen The Old Guard, even though I was really excited about that one, and one day I'll see it. Uh, but right. there's no, there's no rush. There's no immediacy. Uh, so I, I'll probably try to, to to check this out pretty soon because it's a Netflix original. But yeah, if this was theaters. I think I'm uh, I'm kind of just wait for a matinee, wait till like a you know five dollar showing or something like that. But uh, um, and that you know and that David Fincher's father's screenplay thing. I mean that just kind of elevates that. I mean that makes me like now I want to see a movie of the making of yeah <laughs> Mank. Of of Mank, which is a movie of the making of Citizen Kane. I want to see. Yeah. I want to see a movie following Jack and David Fincher do like a simultaneous timeline thing, and you know why not just make it directed oh. by by Dan Fogelman, so where you only realize it at the very end or something like that. Directed by Aaron Schweitzer, because this is a good idea. <laughs> no, I just get a producer credit. I don't know how to direct okay. a movie, <laughs> um, or or at least like original story by. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. So. 
I guess not original story, just story. <laughs> I feel like I've talked for a hot second. Uh, why don't you? Why don't you? Where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about acting? Um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to hammer home Fincher just a little bit more because uh, I I haven't seen Alien Three, The Game, Panic Room, or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Okay, but everything else from David Fincher is either high side of like it or love it for me. That's uh, his movies. I want to say I haven't seen like. Um, sure. House of, House of Cards or Mindhunter or anything like that. Okay. But whether it's Gone Girl, Social Network, Benjamin Button, Zodiac, Fight Club, Seven, you know. Pretty sure I know the movies. answer, but what's your favorite Fincher movie? Social Network, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I love Social Network. And this is kind of like that, where it's based on a true story, something where, for me at least, it's, it's not something I would be interested in in the first place, but maybe he can make just that compelling of a movie um plus it's already getting rave reviews from the critics that have seen it right uh, it's i don't know what the exact numbers are on imdb and rotten tomatoes but i mean I really tr- high i try my hardest not to let that influence my like anticipation level if the scores are lower for something that i'm excited for i don't let that dampen my excitement but if it's something i'm already kind of excited for and the scores are coming out high then it just kind of adds to it for me sure um so yeah i kind of felt this like we were talking about i don't appreciate or i don't understand this era as well i i also did kind of feel that way uh when it came to like once upon a time in hollywood it's like i don't know that much about 60s hollywood but i love that movie sure or like uh just something that you don't think is going to be for you or you don't think you're going to like that much another one like for me would be roma like uh auteur black and white netflix movie i thought it was solid i didn't think it was as great as everyone else did but i did understand what everyone thought okay. or why they thought it. So, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be there for Mank. Um, one comment I wanted to bring up uh, that I saw on the, on the YouTube comments page of the, the trailer that I watched says, this is Fincher finally coming back to redeem his Oscar after it was robbed a decade ago by the guy that went on to make cats. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see, I liked the King's speech, but yeah, probably social. But network. more social network, social network should have won. Yeah, yeah, and well, yeah, Inception would have been my favorite then. But yeah, my my yeah, point crazy. is, the Oscars tend to do lifetime achievement awards, and I think it's about time for for Fincher. Right, going back to Fincher, I've never seen Alien Three or Panic Room, but I've seen mo- pretty much all the rest of his movies, and I have seen Mindhunter, and I have seen House of Cards. Uh, I think the only one I don't like is Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I really don't yeah, like I meant that movie. To- I meant to mention that I don't like that one either. Yeah. Uh, but I, like I said, I haven't seen Alien 3. Um, I, I mean, obviously, 7 is excellent. Uh, I really mm-hmm. like the game. That's a really good one you should check out. Uh, obviously, Fight Club. Ben, yeah. would, ben would be mad if we didn't bring up Fight Club. Um, <laughs> and Fight Club's a good movie. It's in my top 100 somewhere. Uh, yeah, I meant to add, I'll be watching all four of these before I watch Mank. Because okay. Because for something this big, I like to be fully prepared with the filmography. Sure. Uh, yeah, and Social Network's great. Uh, Girl with the Dragon t- Tattoo is really good. Gone Girl, I like quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the one I didn't mention because my favorite uh, Fincher movie is Zodiac. I think that's right. a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. And so dude's got like an amazing track record. Uh, that's definitely something to look forward to. Uh, and especially like this feels like it's a personal, probably passion project for him because oh, 100%. his father's screenplay. and. My guess, so my guess, part of this is the lack of movies that are coming out, and part of this is just the type of movie this is. I think this is going to be a clear front runner for most of the Oscars, at least for a nomination. I mean, because mm-hmm. this is gonna this is gonna get nominated for uh, art and set design, right. makeup and hairstyling, 
pr- director, probably original screenplay. Probably editing. Uh, unless this is adapted screenplay. I don't know. Um, probably editing. Definitely directing. Definitely best picture. Definitely Gary Oldman. Likely Amanda Seyfried. Right. I've seen um, some buzz about her already. I, I mean, this is gonna this is gonna be nominated pretty much across the board. Cinematography for sure. Um, probably score too. Um, and, and again, part of oh, this yeah, is it's just Reznor and Ross. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, what an interesting combo. You know, those with this movie, right? <laughs> and this is gonna be a clear front runner for a lot of. But what's the competition? I mean, Tenet and uh, to I... me, Palm Springs, like. Trial of Chicago 7. Yeah, it's going to be a Netflix year. So you got Trial of right. Chicago 7, uh, Ma Rainey. People are saying, well, yeah, anyway, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a big year for Netflix. That's all. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, the five bloods should also get some nominations, a lack of movies coming out. I mean, there's a lot of indies that are coming out. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really yeah, hopeful that, that the Oscars might recognize a lot of the indies. Regrettably, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get to see many of the indies this year because I would be at my indie theater maybe a couple times a week at this point in a normal year, but Right. Let's talk about some of the acting. Uh, who, you, like, obviously, obviously, old men might get a second Oscar here. Who's the other person you're most excited to see? Uh, the only others that I really recognized in there were uh, Amanda Seyfried and Lily Collins. Okay. I, yeah, she's in there. Oh, and Charles Dance. Play, uh, yep. There's not really anyone that I I really recognize too much. Right. Yeah, I I think I only recognize these four, but at the same time, they all looked really good anytime they were on the screen. I think Fincher's really good at putting the right people in the right places. Um, my last thing is that I made a meme that I wish more people appreciated. And it was, uh, I put David Fincher's face on the Leo pointing meme from once upon a time. And I said, when you're watching citizen Kane and you see Herman Mankiewicz's name in the credits. I did see that. Yeah. Uh, appreciated that. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's talk more about citizen Kane. Then let's do so, it. So we're going to be talking about uh, goats this week, of course. Um, since Robert's on, we'll be doing that. And of course, uh, you know, we're going to get around to the widely considered uh, biggest goat of all time. Citizen Kane, this 1941 movie. You can find it streaming on HBO Max. Synopsis of this movie is following the death of the publishing tycoon Charles Foster Kane. Reporters scramble to uncover the meaning of his final utterance, Rosebud. A little bit of history with this movie is that's an 8.3 on IMDb, which makes it 97 of all time. This has a 100 on Metacritic and a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. This uh, won Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, but that was it. Uh, it was nominated for Best Score, Best Picture, Best Actor with Orson Welles, Best Director with Orson Welles, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Interior Design, Best Sound, and Best Editing. This was in, uh, inducted into the National Film Registry. Robert Ebert called it the greatest movie of all time, and you know the greatest movie critic of all time, Roger Ebert. arguably yeah. calling the greatest movie of all time. You know, I mean, it's either Ebert or Letter Bolton, right? AFI called this the best movie ever in 1998 and 2007, as at least like there was many other times that they did. I think uh, Rosebud is the 17th most memorable quotation according to a poll from AFI, and it has a trillion other accolades. Because here's the thing, like you know, like. Right. If you're listening to a movie podcast, you know about how highly regarded Citizen Kane is. And so I decided just to stop there. <laughs> um, and, you know, also there is a little bit of a sketchy history, kind of like what we talked about with Mink, about kind of the the, the things that it was trying to I mean, sketchy is not the right word, but like controversial. Um, there was a lot of controversy around this movie when it came out that I just don't know enough about to really talk about. And it just looked too complicated to even research for me. So uh, I'll have Dexter fill me in <laughs> nice. uh, or, you know, just let Mank do it. But uh, but Robert, uh, what's your history with this movie? 
Yeah, I've seen it twice now. I saw it once uh, a few years ago in college because I took a film class and, of course, we watched Citizen Kane in a film class. I was kind of bored by it, but I've retroactively come to appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I've, and the other time I have seen it was last night or two nights ago. So cool. there's my history. Yeah, I saw this uh, in high school uh, as part of a class. I didn't really like it. But what I'm more realizing is that I don't really like movies when I'm assigned to watch them because some of them I will go revisit and really like. But some of them I'm just not going to revisit, like Tree of Life. I'm just not going to revisit that one. But, you know, when a movie is widely considered the greatest movie of all time, I'm going to do that. And also when I watched this movie for the first time, this was like one of the first like movies I'd seen before 1970, whatever Star Wars came out, 77, which is typically like my rule of, my favorite movies happen after Star Wars, but yeah, um, doesn't doesn't mean I don't like a lot of the older ones too. Especially doing goats, I find a lot more of them that I do like. So, so it's kind of my history. I really hated it the first time I saw it. So for the longest time, I've just said, yeah, I didn't like it. But uh, I've been wanting to revisit it for a while. Robert, after after this watch, uh, where do you currently sit on Citizen Kane? I'm firmly in liked it. I still don't love it. Don't really like it, but I. I definitely do like it because I feel like it is saying a, a good amount about, you know, lost childhood in a sense and um, what you really value in life and what things, the literal definition of things, what, how far they can get you in self-actualization. And I appreciate a lot of the filmmaking techniques it does specifically. I really, I noticed myself really enjoying the scene where he's talking to his first wife at the breakfast table and, it keeps cutting from him to her. And then every time it cuts back to him, he's older. Uh, that, that sort of thing I really think is cool. Yeah, I, I think the the end, I don't, I don't know if you call it a twist, but it, it holds up. It's great. Uh, it gives you a lot to think about. But overall, like I said, when I saw it in college, I'm still kind of just bored by it overall. I do have it as like a four on Letterboxd. I, I, like I said, I appreciate it. Think it's think it's very good but it's just not the kind of thing I can see myself watching over and over. Okay. Yeah. I would, uh, I would put this uh, in the liked it category as well. Um, when I initially saw it, I would probably put it in the hate it category, maybe like dislike it category, mm-hmm. but I'm going in like it. I'm going to be lower than you though. I, I put this at a three and a half on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, it's better than okay, but I, it's, I would not say I really like this movie or like I firmly like this movie. Um, I'm on the light side of liked it. But I think I have a more clear understanding of why as opposed to when I was in high school, mm-hmm. as opposed to just old movie bad. Right, or whatever. yeah. But we, we, we got we to start off with the expectations of this movie because, again, we talked about how this is widely considered the best movie of all time um, for the longest time by many sources. So it's hard to overcome that. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like I'm doing better at that and I've been doing better at that. And it's never maybe affected me as much as it does a lot of other people mm-hmm. not to try to, you know, sound upright or snobby or anything. <laughs> but like I recently watched Vertigo and Vertigo was the movie that overtook this one as the best of all time. And I think Vertigo really holds up. Vertigo is really good movie. I wouldn't consider it best of all time, but I still really loved it. I think to some degree bias has to play into it. If this was just some random old movie that I'd seen, maybe I'd feel differently about it. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting thought experiment. Can you take away the baggage of a movie before watching it? Because, yeah, the way you just brought it up, if I had never heard of Citizen Kane and you just said, hey, let's watch this movie Citizen Kane for the podcast, and I watched it, I'd just be like, okay, he misses his childhood. You know, I, I would have gotten, I, I certainly would have gotten something out of it because I do think it's a deep movie thematically. 
but sure. I don't know if I would have like thought as seriously about it as I did because of its reputation going on. What is it? 50, 60 years, uh, 70, 70 years. There we go. Because if you, uh, 80 now, Woo. when did it come out? 19, 1941. Okay. Um, I guess I was thinking of, we're in 2020 now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Goldfinger was in the sixties. So that's, I had that on my mind still on like the, the idea of its baggage. When, when I go to watch an old movie like this, I, here, I'll compare it to this. Like last year, people were talking about Parasite for months before I was able to see it. Same. Saying it's like, this is the best movie of the year. Uh, you're going to be mind blown. Try to f- find out as little as you can about it before you watch it. All this stuff. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, man, people were right. This movie is great. And it was my number one or two movie of the year. Uh, and yeah. it's in my top 30 of all time. That's a great example. It lived up to my expectations because you, like you were talking about with Star Wars, um, because of the era I was born in and because of the movies I grew up on, I tend to appreciate just more modern movies more than I do older movies. Uh, those are the ones that grab me and those are the ones that stick with me the most. So that's why I think something like Parasite, as an example, again, is able to live up to its to its reputation, whereas you kind of come in having a predetermined reverence for something like Citizen Kane. And that's kind of where it begins and ends for me is like, wow, this movie is great. Uh, I have this reverence for it, but it's not on my top 100 of all time. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with that. This is this wouldn't come close. To, this is not close to touching my top 100 of all time. So here's the other thing. This is a very well made film, right? And it's innovative too, right? This is this is a lot of the way that I feel about like Birdman is a good example. Mm-hmm. Birdman is a very well made movie that I don't particularly like. It wasn't quite for me. I think some of the times with the metaphors, it just got to be a little bit too much. Some of the things wound up being really interesting, but but Birdman was a very well made film, mm-hmm. and you know, frankly, a lot of the goats that we might talk about are going to be this way. Um, well made films that aren't necessary that doesn't necessarily make it a good movie. Um, so you know, maybe even King's Speech might fall in that category. Uh, not quite as innovative, but at the very least, that's a well made movie. Right. But but I think I think Birdman is is that good example of, for me. I was like, yeah, this kind of deserves to win the best picture but it's by far not the not the most entertaining movie of that year so yeah so like this is a very well made movie it's uh it's really good but yeah that parasite example is just terrific of yeah i didn't see it until it finally became available on on a on digital two weeks before release and i was like i gotta see this as soon as i can but it held up to all expectations and i again i think that has a lot to do with it's a 2019 movie as opposed to a 1940s movie Right, right. We haven't been hearing about Parasite for 80 years. Right. You know, but but at the same time, I feel like Seven Samurai held up for me, even though it was a story that I knew. Um, but like, I feel like that that held up really well for me. Yeah, this isn't to say like old movies can't be good because they can't hold up. You know, we, we talked about Rope. I love Rope. Or yep. uh, I mentioned Singing in the Rain earlier. I love that one. You know, 12 Angry Men, anything like that. It's just like a different style of filmmaking. Um Filmmaking has evolved so much over the decades. Again, I'm not trying to disparage older movies. It's just a product sure. of my age and the types of movies I grew up loving and the types of movies that I tend to love now. Well, let's dive into the actual movie itself then. Yeah. Uh, Robert, maybe you can help me out. I'm, I'm still... Uh, this movie has so much going on in it that sometimes you get lost. Um, at least, At least I did. Mm-hmm. It's a relatively simple movie at its core, but there's so many el- working elements. Uh, can you tell me why he was taken away from his family? Something about his family had a plot of land 
that was thought to be useless, but then they found like a, a coal mine on it. And so the family got a ton of money. And so they took them away. I honestly meant to look this up and forgot about it until just now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing details, but there's so many details in this movie. It's hard to keep track of all of them. Yeah, let's look it up real quick. And there's also, you know, this is a 80-year societal difference. I mean, th- think of all the things that weren't around 80 years ago and the way that society was different in terms of even owning land and stuff like that. Like, I'm sure there's some cultural differences here, but the family gets money and then sends him away? Yeah, they still live small, humble lifestyles? I don't... Here's my first comment that i found on reddit is that it's to get him away from an abusive father okay i i did pick up on that because that's what the mother kind of says right she right i picked up on the abusive father part and he does the whole thing about you can't take my son away from me uh then he slaps one of the three the three people yeah you you can tell he's not a great guy so maybe it's just that now that she is has come into wealth and come into a good financial position she tries to do what she deems to be the best for her son by sending him away from his dangerous father because maybe she doesn't want uh, CF Kane to become like his father. That's fair. That's just what I'm that's putting fa- together right now. Okay, that, like that's fair, and that you know that 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 makes sense. That kind of pieces it together a little bit. You know, now that she has the means to get him out, she wants to get him out, but she can't you know, get him out herself or doesn't want to for some reason. You know, because love is dumb like that. Okay, so that, that cleared that up a little bit. Um, what do you think about News on the March? I can't decide if I like it or not. News on the like it's 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 the first like twelve minutes of the oh movie you mean just like the opening the, yeah where it's where it's that going through CF Kane's life. What do you think about that? Yeah, the first time that I saw the movie, I was genuinely wondering if this was the whole movie, just like his whole life as a news story. I think I think it's helpful. It does the narrator without having a narrator throughout the whole movie, because it kind of tells you everything that is going to happen. And then it throughout the rest of the movie, it gives you more of the details and more of the nuances of what actually happened during these, these times in his life. Cause it says like he married twice, but that's pretty much all, you know, that he married a second wife two months after he divorced his first, but you don't know exactly what went into it, that he had a kid at the, at the time. Right. That he was just looking for some sort of connection, that that sort of thing. I, I don't have a problem with it. I can't decide if I like it or not because I think it, I think it's good at kind of setting up where things are. But it's not like one of those we've got you to a certain point now you get to fill in the rest from here. And it's also not anything especially like that gives you extra insights and and it's not necessarily anything that I would deem even necessary. But. What it does do is set you up in the mindset of this reporter because they're watching this and they're like, this is just okay. Like, all we know is this vague details about this guy. We don't know who this guy actually is. So I feel like I both like it and don't like it. They could have done an abridged version, like a shorter one. I don't think it needed to be as long as it was. Maybe that would have helped me like it more uh, or be more okay with it. I just thought there were so many details in there that they try to, you know, tell us later and maybe this is one of those things that they didn't have it in there initially and then after like a pre you know, early screenings or something people are like this movie's confusing what and so they added maybe i don't know you know this is why i enjoy doing this podcast because like another podcast i talk about movies i've seen uh, a lot of times or that i have more history with but here we kind of talk through things and get you know better understanding of, of a movie we've only seen maybe a couple times 
So I, I like what you said about them trying to understand who he is, because how many rich, famous, powerful people have, you know, just you and I seen die and had like little news stories on in our relatively short lives. Um, right. I think it's trying to to say like, look, here's 10 or 12 minutes uh, summarizing this guy's life in the public eye. But then the rest of the movie is like, there's more to a person than just right. this. He could have all well, these influences. And I love that. Your, your, your problem is that it's just a little too long. I mean, I think so because a lot of the things that they tell us there are retold later. Well, like I, I think it, I think it helps establish a timeline. I, I really um, think it's trying to reframe the things though, because like the the example I gave where it okay. just mentions that he got married to a second wife two months after he left his first. Uh, there's a lot more going on there. Like later right. on, you see that he was having somewhat of an affair, even though right. it didn't go all the way yet. But he had a yeah son, and his w- wife felt betrayed, and all that. It kind of gets into the nitty gritty of it all. Well, that all right, that's fair. But at the same time, now it's it's going to bring up other questions that I have about things. I think if it's shorter, if it's a little bit more brief, fine. But they're saying literally all we know about this guy is packed in here. It's like, dude ran for governor, like. <laughs> You got to know more about him if he ran for governor and if he was you know, the this huge tycoon that was very in the public eye mm-hmm. like and he wasn't he wasn't like alone there was how many people served him at Xanadu like he might have been a, a reclusive type of person but that's well, just me nitpicking I guess but isn't that kind of the point is that no one really knew him that well and he didn't open himself up to people like I mean you knew him professionally I don't Remember the older, exact older Charles Foster Kane, yes, but I think that younger one. I mean, he's he's very vibrant. He interacts with people pretty much up until the point that um, he loses governor, and then yeah, and then he marries the second wife. And all right, what do you want? I I kind of brought up those first two points. What what are some things you want to mention? Yeah, I didn't write down like a ton of story beats that confuse me or anything like that, but I did write down a few lines that kind of summarize different parts of what the movie's about. Um, and I and stuff that I really appreciated. Uh, sure. So yeah, I I only did one like that, and it's pretty obvious, I think. But yeah, the first one is Charles Kane says, "If I hadn't been very rich, I might have been a great man." Yep. Is that the one you wrote down? <laughs> yeah, that's the one I wrote down. He says, "You know, Mr. Thatcher, if I'd have been very rich, I might have been a great man." And then he says, "Don't you think you are?" And he said, "I think I did well under the circumstances." And then he says, "What would you have liked to have been?" And he says, "Everything you hate." I mean, that's the summary of the movie, right? right? Yeah, exactly. And that's great dialogue. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And not to do more self-promotion, but it's kind of what I was talking about with La La Land and Moneyball, right? Um, yeah. How you define success. He finds himself stuck in this life of success the way that all these people around him define it. But that's obviously not how he defines it. And it's all uh, brought together with just the one line, Rosebud, and what Rosebud means. He wanted a life of connection. He he missed being the young child, making a snowman, running around in the snow. Again, this is what it was pointed out as a quick aside in my film class in college is the, the framing of that scene when he's a kid, having him seen through the window while the parents are in the, the foreground. Uh, he's already d- detached and, and apart. Yep. I, I love that. I think it's great. 
I think, yeah, I think the cinematography in this movie is excellent. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of different notes of that. I mean, that's that's definitely one of the things that I remember now hearing from film class. But yeah, but I can I can talk about them later um, if you want to keep going with your your quotes, things that you really like. No, yeah, just to finish up on the if I hadn't been read, like it's I I love that theme, and that's where I get the the parts that I like from the movie. Again, I think it's just a product of older movies just not being as engaging to me for whatever reason. I don't I, I, I don't know if you want to harp on this for much longer, but I wonder if this exact story, like if this exact story and filmmaking had never been made in the 40s, if it had been if it had come out now with modern filmmaking, I probably would appreciate it more. Uh, but that's just another little well, thought experiment. Well, and that's the thing is this movie inspired so many. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking an 80 year old movie. I mean. To me, this seems miles ahead of its time for its time. Right. But we've learned better filmmaking techniques and we've learned how do you get across your message in the shortest amount of time and you can be potentially fitted more. How could you be more clear about things? Um, and a lot of times you know, because of this movie. And a lot of times because of this movie. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a very important movie and it's essential to film history. But because movies progressively get better and we'll probably be saying the same things about movies that come out now, 80 years from now. Right. Right. Yeah. We'll be like, man, remember when people loved Mank? Like, (laughs) yeah. And by then there's going to be a movie about making Mank about making Mank. Anyway. (laughs) Right. Or or like, yeah. Or like, you remember when everybody really liked Shawshank Redemption? What a piece of crap that is. Like (laughs) in, well, in theory, I mean, because you still have stuff like, you know, Transformers, last night or um, you know a bunch of other stuff that we'll talk about some other stinkers that come out uh, later but you, you still you know just because time evolves doesn't mean movies necessarily have to get better but i'll go back to cinematography then yeah um, go for it um i've always appreciated the way this film looks and specifically so um the way that mr bernstein reflects off of his desk when we when we get that interview with him at the beginning it, it's it's just a beautiful shot mm-hmm. um, i don't know if there's necessarily any meaning to that uh but it's a beautiful shot same thing with uh, the scene where, well, actually, these other ones I do think have more symbolism to them. But uh, uh, the other ones I have is just in general, the way that, and this is not so much cinematography as it is art and set design, but it's very deliberate. But it's how Charles Foster Kane is dressed in an all white suit at the very beginning and progressively, you know, he switches to a black jacket and a black bow tie. Then all of a sudden he has dark pants on. And all of a sudden, you know, it, like he very, very gradually turns from this very white. Right, clean, pure person to this very dark, sinister person. To by the end of the movie, he's wearing almost all black, mm-hmm. and that you know that's deliberate and that's intentional. And that's a, just a really, really good way to point out degradation of a right. human, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the the scene where Kane towers over his wife um, when she's on the floor reading the reviews after the opera debut, yeah, like that's just a really like powerful shot and definitely symbolizes kind of his expression and extension of authority and then of course the the very famous shot of him walking in front of i'm going to call them the infinity mirrors but the two mirrors that are kind of placed side by side and you're in the middle of them if you get just the right angle it looks like you know it's like that scene in inception with right. uh, with ellen page man the creativity to come up with that in 1941 man and to make it work right because yeah. like well and here, so here's the other part is all these like a lot of these film editing techniques like this has to be all practical Mm-hmm. They can't digitally remove a camera in a shot. Right. <laughs> like it's a very impressively made film. Yes. And that's where, you know, that's where the influence comes from that we've, that we've talked about. <laughs> I think the makeup, it, it gets worse as it gets old. I don't, I don't think it holds up when he becomes an old man. It's just distracting. It looks, it looks clumpy and chalky. 
I didn't mind it actually, but if you want to do the Irishman, you do you you, you should have done it years and years ago when De Niro was young and then could go yes. to old because it doesn't work in reverse. I was thinking about that when watching I, watching it. I had the same thought when he destroys Susan Alexander Kane's room at the very end. Mm-hmm. When he, when he does that, um, I was thinking this, the exact same thing with the Irishman, although it's kind of on an opposite level because he's a young man trying to play an old man versus, you know, De Niro in the Irishman, especially when he like gets that first kill and he's supposed to be like 30. Like he very right. clearly looks like he's 80. When he's curb snapping right. the guy, it just doesn't look realistic. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so I was thinking, I, w- I actually had the same parallel with the Irishman, except, you know, it's reverse because you do the Irishman 30 years ago. Exactly. Uh, or you get younger actors. <laughs> One other note I wanted to mention was the the line at the very end where uh, I don't know if, if I wrote it down verbatim. I was writing it down as yeah as I was. Uh, I didn't I didn't write it down. But you're talking about the monologue at the end. Yeah, um, I don't think any word like can explain a man's life. I think it's just a missing piece in a jigsaw puzzle. As I was listening to that line, I was like, I don't think any word can explain a man's life. I heard that. And I was like, well, I I kind of disagree because Rosebud is the big uh, key to everything. But then as the line went on and he said, I think it's just a missing piece into a jigsaw puzzle. I said, you, you got me because that's exactly what I was thinking because you have this big old puzzle uh, and you have most of the pieces. And again, she's doing a jigsaw puzzle. So there's the visual representation of what, of what is missing here. And again, if you have just one missing piece in a puzzle, most of the time, you know exactly what the picture is, but you don't get the full understanding of it. You don't get to, take in the full beauty of the puzzle so if you just put in place in that piece that rosebud piece it just unlocks so much it's like (laughs) again comparing it to a modern movie but prestige when hugh jackman is looking for the the code word to to or the cipher Mm. to unlock all of borden's uh notebook if you just have that one thing you're going to understand everything because as the audience at the end you you know what rosebud means finally and everything else makes sense well, and I think one of the things that made this rewatch more enjoyable is I understood what Rosebud was. Whereas the yeah, first time, yeah. like, I didn't know. Uh, I hadn't been spoiled on it. and so, But this time watching it, I had known Rosebud was his childhood. And that was his, the missing piece. That was the thing that he regretted, the, that he wishes was different about his life, that he actually had a childhood. And, and it's very apparent when you actually know that. And so this mm-hmm. is definitely a movie that rewards rewatches to some extent. Do you think the Rosebud reveal is like a... Do you think that all works? Do you think it works as a good twist? Because, and you don't have to answer because you pretty much answered my question already in that in that little statement. I do there because I, I think I think this is very similar to the twist in the Prestige. You you kind of don't really know what's going on the first time you watch the movie, and then after you see it, you're like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And you know, the Prestige is one of those movies where you immediately want to pop it back in and rewatch exactly. it after the first time. I do, I don't feel that way about Citizen Kane, but I do feel like that's like a Oh yeah, I want like uh, the next time I watch that movie, I'm gonna get a better appreciation about it. Right. So I, th- I think it's a very good reveal. Citizen Kane isn't like a Nolan movie where you have that last puzzle piece and you're gonna try to figure out the world building, but you're gonna understand the man's life, which is just like a more straightforward movie watching experience. Just understanding a man uh, and his internal struggles throughout his life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I want to stick on this road but rosebud thing for a little bit because I love the message that it has thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, you know we talked about how the last dialogue is just excellent, uh, how how the meaning behind it is really excellent, but it, it doesn't. It's got some flaws. <laughs> 
it's both very specific and very broad. I don't know why his attachment is to Rosebud, and I understand this. He ha- he's playing with a sled the day that he's taken away from his parents. Yeah. So maybe that's why that's such a prominent I mean, memory to him. But like, does he not have like a more like near and dear toy to his heart than? I guess they're in Colorado, so he probably uses the sled frequently. But does he not have like you know to me it'd be like a Buzz Lightyear, right? <laughs> well, does he does he does he not have like a or like a Blade Runner twenty four? Does he not have like a little toy wooden horse? Well, is it, I think it is like the the toy wooden horse because that's the turning point for his entire life. It did right. happen at such a young point. I don't. He's like what six, well, eight, something like that. Well, that's what that's why I'm that's why I'm saying I, I buy into it because that was the thing he was doing with the traumatic event and that's what he would associate with it but also it's a movie thing right because we yeah. we had favorite toys when we were his age and that's what we would think of but for a movie to drive home the point that's it's a yeah. like a perfect thing to drive home the the point you know yes it works well for the movie but in actuality it's kind of a little confusing maybe and that's why movies um, are different than than life and that's why sure well and here's the other thing like surely somebody would have had a remembrance of a sled company named rosebud right like and that looked like a pretty decent quality sled it wasn't homemade anything like that like i mean sure rosebud could have meant a million different things and nobody how do you make the connection there but especially and i'm willing to forgive most to forgive most of that but especially when that idiot just throws it in the fire is holding it to where he should have been able to see it and he and everybody knows Rosebud is his last word, and people are trying to figure it out. And then he throws it on the fire with Rosebud facing out. Like you're telling me nobody saw that. <laughs> Again, it's a movie thing. For one thing, there's just so much stuff in that huge like warehouse area. Uh, yeah, they're probably just on autopilot. We have to throw all this crap in the the incinerator. Right. For another thing, over what period of time did the the framing device of the movie take place? So like the the journalist talking to people gosh I, I would think it'd be like a week because right if, it, if if it's longer then they would have cleared out his estate already yeah it's not it's not super long so it's not like it's I'm a sure movie thing and it, it's okay of, it's yeah i'm sure people thought of oh it's the if they had thought of it i don't know if they would have put two and two together again it's like the maybe. the puzzle piece that only the audience and only charles are gonna get you know sure like i mean like i said it's okay it just kind of brings up some you know is this the best way to do this does this completely make sense especially when everything hinges on this one word does everything make sense um okay so here's here's the kind of final part that i thought about while while we were talking if his father is abusive then why does he miss that and like i get there's that whole like natural parentage and probably had a more strong connection with his mother who frankly seems kind of soulless in this movie but she's giving up her kid yeah um (laughs) He he probably would have been a nobody. He definitely wouldn't have done the things that he did. He might have honestly been worse off because growing up in an abusive household. Like maybe he wasn't missing like his father and mother specifically, but just the idea of sure of innocence of having a childhood. Yeah, of having a childhood of innocence of not being thrown into a situation uh, that he couldn't control. Once his, I know like when you're born, you can't control the situation you're born into, but he. As a kid, he had this idealized uh, idea of of his life, and he feels like his wealth ruined that. Again, there's the line that we talked about. If, if he hadn't been very rich, he might have been a, a great man. So he, he probably feels like he could have done more uh, if he hadn't had so many 
lofty expectations placed on him uh, from such an early age. That's fair. I know my issue. I know my real issue with the movie. Okay. Um, pre- pretty much any of the movie that happens with Susan Alexander Kane, I just don't, I hate. Except for before they're married, I think that's okay. Like when they're doing the affair thing, uh, but the whole sequence of her, like of him trying to start her opera career, uh, it's just it's so long, it's so uninteresting. And I get that, like we're what we're watching the downfall of this guy, but I feel like this is a, not an effective. It's either not an effective way it's written or it's a not effective device to get it to. to it. I think the device is okay. I just, that's the part of the movie that drags. That's the part of the movie that I don't like. That's the part of the movie that really make me, especially when none of it makes sense in the end. None of it has anything to do with the final message of Rosebud. I'll disagree or I'll agree with most of what you said, except for none of it has anything to do. I think it's just, it's trying to show him as a person and it's just not being effective. Um, but I'm going to agree with the rest that it's like, that's where it drags the most because up until that point, I was like, okay, maybe I do really like this movie. Maybe I was whatever, not into seeing a movie like this when I saw it, because I don't think my rating of this has gone up too much overall. I think it's still about an eight. So like I said, up and up until then, I was like, maybe this will be an, or an, a nine or a 10, but then yeah, I think she's kind of an annoying character that just makes it like, yeah, echoing, echoing everything you said, it makes it difficult to watch. Sometimes well, when I'm watching <laughs> a show or watching sports or watching a movie or something in my living room, and this is going to make it seem like my wife and I have a bad relationship where we don't talk, but I'll be watching the TV <laughs> and she'll be sitting on the couch with earbuds and watching something on her phone. But she could even hear just like her wailing, the characters wailing and like just like the loud grating voice. And she just turned to me and said, she has such an annoying voice. And I was like, well, yep. So yep. it's, I, it's not indicative of, of much, but if she's just over there not paying attention to the movie and she's annoyed anyway, I think that says a little bit. The worst offender in this part, uh, especially this section is the sudden obnoxious peacock transition. Yeah. <laughs> what what the crap? Who thought that was a good idea? Yeah, I don't have anything to add. That's a bad idea. It wasn't very great. And, and, you know, the only thing I could think of is they knew this section was bad and they needed something to wake up the audience because the movie's getting ready to get good again. So yeah. giant sudden peacock that screams, all right, I'm 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 awake. It's like, okay. <laughs> I want to briefly mention the acting, like very briefly, then we can move on. Do you think anybody's particularly good or particularly bad? I think Orson Welles is particularly good. I think the second wife is particularly but particularly bad. Um, other than that, everyone is good. I agree with that. I think Orson Welles is excellent. Uh, Dorothy Comingor plays Susan. Uh, she's bad. I don't like her at all. I, and like, I get that the the movie is not supposed to make you like the character, but I'm saying on an acting level, uh, she's not a very good actress. Right. <laughs> um, I think it's just and, Part it's part of it, but I I just think her her expressions are manner. Uh, she's over exaggerated. Um, I don't think she's uh, particularly good. Um, and I think uh, I think Jed and Bernstein are are also stands out standouts. Mm-hmm. But uh, but everybody else is is good. Also, you mentioned uh, kind of just how, how if this movie was all going to be news on the march. I think I would like to see this movie done in a documentary style. Like if they were ever going to like remake this or even like in, like remake this in theory, you know, documentary style based off of uh, the interviewer, just make him a you know documentary person hmm. instead of a newspaper article. I, I think that'd Modernize be really interesting. Yeah, and, and then you don't actually get to see Charles Foster Kane, but you get to see him through the words of everybody else. I think that'd be really interesting. 
Yeah. Obviously, the the revelation at the end would have to be a little bit differently played out because I don't know how you do that in that same manner. But so <laughs> this this my last note on this isn't like a serious note on the movie. But have you ever seen the Shia LaBeouf opera video? Yes. Where they're like singing about him being a cannibal. <laughs> I never realized the ending of that video was inspired by a shot in Citizen Kane. <laughs> and I've seen that video 10 million times. <laughs> That's excellent. For some reason, the first time I saw it, didn't put two and two together. But here, where, where he's clapping at the opera trying to show extra support for his wife. That's exactly what they do in the Shia LaBeouf video. And I appreciate that a million times more. That's also an excellent scene. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't mentioned it yet. Cool. Uh, Robert, do you think, uh, well, first of all, are you going to watch this movie again? Probably. Um, This like, I don't, I don't hate it. I do think it's good. Um, I'll probably give it another shot sometime trying to appreciate the section that we didn't like a little bit more. Yeah, I think this is like maybe like a once every like ten years or so. Not a frequent watch, but yeah, I'd rewatch this movie. Yeah, does is this movie a goat? I mean, I I think we have or I have to say yes because I do think it has a ton going on thematically, and of course it pioneered um, a lot of filmmaking techniques. So yep. even though it does drag a bit, I still would put it as a goat. I think so too. And, you know, we've kind of wrestled with the definition of what makes a movie a goat. And I, I, I was thinking of the Criterion collection, like what their motto is. And it's uh, important and relevant movies mm-hmm. uh, or like important and excellent movies. And uh, this, this is a movie that's important to the history of filmmaking. Um, I don't know that it's particularly an excellent movie itself, uh, but at least technique, at least foundation for filmmaking principles. I think that this is a, a really important movie to watch uh, and to kind of see where a lot of people have gotten inspiration from and uh, and how they've improved upon. Uh, so uh, even though I don't particularly like the movie all that much, I think I probably went from like a three or a four to like a seven, I think, mm-hmm. out of ten. Again, I, I'm kind of imagining this as assembling my own Criterion collection. You know, these are movies that are excellent or important. Um, right. Kind of like I said with the good. I'm kind of here with I am with I am with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like I didn't particularly love it, but it's it's very foundational. So. Yeah, I'd put I'd put it in there as well. Well, we've talked about Sister Kane for a long time, rightfully so, I think. Let's move on to Goldfinger. I promise I have less notes about Goldfinger, uh, and I don't think we have to defend ourselves quite as much about Goldfinger. We say but, that uh, every time, and then we end up talking for <clears throat> half an hour. Yeah, here we go. 1964 movie. Uh, this is streaming nowhere I can find. A synopsis of movies. While investigating a gold magnate's smuggling, James Bond uncovers a plot to contaminate the Fort Knox, Fort Knox Gold Reserve. A little bit spoilerish of a synopsis, but uh, mm-hmm. that's okay. This is, I can't find this anywhere to stream, although I think it's coming to Prime Video next month because I think all the James Bonds are. They're on and off Prime all the time. A little bit of history of this movie. It's a 7.7 on IMDb, an 87 on Metacritic, and a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. This won the Oscar for Best Sound Effects, making it the first Bond movie to win an Oscar. So this is nominated for, uh, for a Grammy for Best Original Score. That was interesting. I don't think Gram- I didn't know Grammys did scores ever. Yeah. Nominated for a BAFTA for Art Direction. The number 90 best movie quote, uh, a martini straight shaken, not stirred. That's according to AFI. Number 53, best song. Number 49, best villain. At number 71, most thrilling film. 2006, EW declared this the best Bond film. MSN named it number two behind From Russia with Love. In 2008, Total Film said Goldfinger's the best. Uh, IGN and EW named Pussy Galore as the best Bond girl. Times named Goldfinger and Oddjob as number two and three best of Bond villains. That was in 2008. And the Times also said that this Aston Martin DB5 is the best in all the Bond movies. 
This is the third 007 movie, of course, based off of the 1959 book by Ian Fleming. This is also the first movie that came out after his death. This became the template for future Bond movies, including the first like big pre-credit sequence, uh, the first appearance of Q Branch. Q Branch briefly appears in From Russia with Love, but it's it's just pretty much a hand-up briefcase. It's not anything special. It's not really what Q Branch becomes. Uh, and the basic structure featuring a henchman with a particular characteristic, a Bond girl who's, who is killed by the villain, a big emphasis on the gadgets, and a more tongue-in-cheek approach, though trying to balance action and comedy. This is where all that sort of started. My history with this movie is that I really watched the Bond movies a lot as a kid, although I never watched the ones before uh, Bronson. and then, uh, So I grew up with the Bronson ones. And then... Uh, been keeping up with the Craig ones. And uh, in college, uh, I went back trying to work through them all. I think I got just through the first three. And uh, for some reason, it, it's a big undertaking. Yeah. Once I got to Goldfinger, then it's just like, all right, now there's a lot of not good until GoldenEye. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to work my way through all of them. I did watch Dr. No and From Russia with Love before watching this one. But uh, Robert, what's your uh, history with this movie? And if you don't have any, then uh, what particularly excited you about watching this? Yeah, so this is only my third James Bond movie ever. I watched Spectre in theaters because my friends wanted to go, and I said, sure. And I saw Casino Royale because I tried to start the current Craig movies a couple of years ago, and I didn't really love Casino Royale, so I didn't go and watch the next two or three or however many. The reason I didn't see many Bond films is because I basically only ever became... I only ever got into things that like adults or friends were into when I was a kid. So no one really showed me James Bond. So that's just kind of how I grew up. Like my dad showed me Lord of the Rings and the rest is history. My uncle liked superheroes. So that's why I grew up watching superhero stuff as a kid, etc. Yeah, I was gonna have seen all the Craig movies at this point in time if the pandemic never hit because I was gonna see them before No Time to Die. But you know, here we are. I was interested in watching this just because it's James Bond and it's such a iconic series that I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> so when you said this one, I said, okay, I don't know any James Bond history, so I'll just go along with what you, <laughs> what you suggest. Yeah, we, we toyed around with the idea of just doing Dr. No, but I think Dr. No is only iconic because it's the first one. I don't, I don't know that people ever consider Dr. No a goat. Um, we could have done From Russia with Love, but I think Goldfinger is in general widely held more widely held. And I think we also toyed around with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm -hmm. But again, same thing. I think Goldfinger is just the most popular one. And I, I think it's also fitting that we're talking about a Sean Connery one this month. Yeah, It, it was it, it was sometimes really hard to watch these. <laughs> that that should be at least at least mentioned. Right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Robert, after seeing Goldfinger, uh, what do you think about... You said you didn't really like Casino Royale at all, uh, nor Spectre. Uh, after seeing Goldfinger, what did you think about it? Did you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay? Yeah, I just like Citizen Kane, I'm firmly and liked it. I didn't love it, cool. didn't like it a lot, but I thought it was it was fun at times and dated at <laughs> fun at best, dated at worst. Before you get give your rating, I just do want to say I think Connery was the best part of the movie and I'm glad that we that we watched the Connery Bond. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, he's for sure the best part of this movie. He's for sure, he's the best part of all of his Bond movies. Okay, uh, and I definitely have a note about that. But uh, uh, I'm in the loved it category. I really love this one. This is my second favorite Bond movie. I would go Casino Royale, then Goldfinger, then Skyfall, then probably From Russia with Love, maybe Goldeneye, and the rest of them I don't think are like 
really worth putting in a top Bond movies of all time that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll, I'll make a ranking of them as after, after I uh, finish them all. But um, yeah, this is my second favorite. And I actually have this as my 74th favorite movie of all time. Nice. So it's it's not like super high, but it, it's it's on the top 100. Yeah, I mean, we already mentioned Sean Connery, so let's just keep going there. Uh, he's he's excellent. Uh, he's a perfect Bond. He's perfect for exactly what this movie was wanting to be. And yes, sometimes that is dated. Here, here's the thing I have to say about that, though, is this is it's less dated than it is in the first two movies. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Is he more uh, womanizing in those two? Yes. Because there's um, three different women within the first, like, 30 minutes. Yeah, I think he gets with like five total different girls in Dr. No. Wow. And uh, he's always a womanizer. You know, it's a 60s spy movie. Yeah. They wanted right. him to be cool and suave. And apparently getting with a lot of women makes you cool and suave. There's the scene on the plane when he first meets the the main girl, which I don't want to say the name on <laughs> this podcast, even though you already Fine. said it. Uh, he, I mean, it's a name. Yeah, sure. But anyway, when he first meets her and and after he like, talks his way out of being lasered in half she walks back to the cockpit and then he looks over at the like the stewardess and it it fades out but it's like he in his mind you can tell he's like well i struck out on that one time to turn my focus to this one it's like eh. but again like you said it is the 60s spy movies it was the take it for what it is but also condemn it yeah i agree understand this isn't a time but we also have to understand that that's not that doesn't make it right right, uh, right. for for society or anything like that um and so there, there's a scene the way first find of con- kind of convinces uh pussy galore to to be with him uh in the barn and uh um he's a bit forceful there which is you know a good example of what we're talking about here there are many more examples like that in the first two bond movies hmm. and so it's again it's just one of those things we have learned we have grown um, as a society, as a as a as a film culture, that stuff like this just isn't really acceptable anymore. And I mean, Daniel Craig gets with a lot of girls in the movies, but he's never like forceful about it. He's just a good-looking guy that's charming and confident. Right. That's the three keys to success, right? <laughs> I, I have like at least one of those three. I don't know. <laughs> but getting back to the con- yeah, he's he's excellent in this movie. Yeah. He's suave. He's thirty-six when this movie comes out, and like you know, even I was my my wife was making comments about like, yeah, this is like. You know, any every girl just falls over him. I'm like, I'd fall for a 36 year old Sean Connery. Like, come on, dude was handsome and confident and cool as all get out. Yeah, exactly. Um, and but this is also the first time I feel that Bond really feels like Bond in these movies because, like I said, I watched Doctor No from Rush of Love, mm-hmm. and he Sean Connery is definitely doing the part, but everything kind of comes together because he's had the cool and he's had the job and he's having the girls, but now all of a sudden you add Q Branch um, with the the really cool gadgets and uh, and you add the car the Aston Martin and, uh, and actually Bond has a strategy this time. The first two, he just kind of happens into a situation. I mean, like he's sent there on assignment, but he just kind of like stumbles upon it at the end and then just figures it out as he goes. Whereas Goldfinger, like he actually does spy work. He actually does detective work. He actually is trying to figure out on his own. There's no end dialogue where the villain, it just gives them a plan as he's trying to kill mm-hmm. him. Like he, he does the detective work to figure out the plan it makes for a good spy movie. See, I didn't think it was to the level of uh, Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark where he didn't need to be there for everything to happen. But it seemed like he was incapacitated for a lot of what was going on. That's true. Um, Whether he's on a gold table or whether he's in a cell, like he's always finding ways out of the situation. But Goldfinger continues to do what he wants to do up until the very end. 
And actually, that's a question that I have. Okay. Unless you had anything to respond to there. I mean, anything I was going to say there, just uh, I'll, I'll probably bring up later. But yeah, you're right. This is, is not as useless as Indiana Jones. And he's in, he, he's incapacitated, but he's doing the best with this situation. Right. The, the, the notes I have are really about the CIA's response. Um, whenever he's like incapacitated because they just like assume he's okay just because he's like st- like so I could, I could cross that out the list now. <laughs> yeah, they like, said like if if he needs us he'll he'll shout or he'll call or something it's like even though he activates his tracker and he it, you know but well, like it, if right, he's so, in a cell uh, how can he alert them <laughs> right i'll just i'll just make this note now that uh it, it, i love how not everything works out yeah. because the first yeah. two movies things just kind of work out his way and a lot of spy movies Things just kind of work out, but like he tries to get that note with the tracker in mm-hmm. the guy, and then that guy goes in the car compactor, yeah. and like you know, like uh, things like that just don't work out. Again, the the CIA guys just assume he's doing okay, but <laughs> but you know, it makes it he's got to get creative, he's got to think on his feet, he's got to. I mean, honestly, Pussy Galore is more essential than than Bond <laughs> because she's the one that tips off the CIA. That's my question. When when does she tip off the CIA? It's is she after off screen at some point. It's off screen at some point, yes. Like, when does yeah. Bond realize that he that she's actually on his side? Bond realizes that she's on his side when he figures out his uh, Goldfinger's plan. Because Pussy Galore thinks that she's just getting gold. Because that's what everybody thinks. Right. But Goldfinger's plan, which also I love, is simply to mm-hmm. yeah. nuke Fort Knox right. and make all that gold worthless yeah. for 60 years. And, uh, and so that would destroy the U.S. economy and... That would increase the value of Goldfinger's gold. Mm-hmm. Pussy Glory isn't getting any gold out of this. Um, I mean, maybe he'd give her a little bit, or maybe he'd pay her something. But in all likelihood, he's probably just going to kill her afterwards, right? Yeah. Either way, she's not getting what she was promised, and he and he clues her into that when they shag up. And then, yes, off screen, she alerts the CIA uh, with Felix, and then they devise the plan. Because um, Felix says that kind of expositing at the very end to, to to try to make it sense. Right. They never actually released the gas. Everyone just pretended to be asleep for right. however long, right? Right. Yeah. Well, she yeah she replaced the canisters with nothing. Right. So again, really smart. Oh no, yeah, it's that. a cool like, plan. Yeah, I was just curious about when well, we were Gold, supposed. To Goldfinger's know. plan is cool, and Pussy Galore's changing of the plan is really cool. Mm-hmm. I I don't think I've seen anything like it either. Either either one of those. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's supposed to happen off screen sometime between when they hook up and afterwards, because or and and, uh, and before the raid. Gotcha. Uh, Did you see? But Goldfinger has no reason not to trust Pussy Galore. Right, right, yeah. Did you see uh, the Sonic movie? No. There's a there's a Jim Carrey line in there where he goes, "I didn't see that coming," but I was expecting to not see something coming, so it still counts. <laughs> so that's kind of <laughs> nice. That's what I thought of. Let's see. Oh, we've just done that. We've talked about pretty much most of the things that I wanted to say. Um, the The movie almost suffers from too many villains, almost uh, because you have Goldfinger being your main one, and then you have um, Odd Job, uh, which, by the way, I love both of them equally. Like, see, I loved Odd Job up until the the last fight, where he's throwing his hat. And- <laughs> You know, he's just smiling and he's taking his time with it. But no, it was more just the filmmaking of it where it's like, okay, you could tell it was a 60s movie um, because if they did that same fight with no music trying to be gritty, I think it would have worked a lot better if they made the exact same movie now. But it just kind of seemed a little cheesy. Um, My wife didn't like it. She uh, she's just like, it bothers me that there's no score here. Right. I can understand that. I see what they were trying to do, but like 
him backhanding him in the stomach, you know, it, it didn't really work with their filmmaking techniques at the time, but I'm sure it was great at the time. But seeing him yeah, so- crush a golf ball in his hand and all like that, that's super cool. <laughs> Right, right, and seeing his top hat—that's you know, <laughs> does he <laughs> indestructible? Yeah, but yeah, he's fun, and you know, he doesn't say a word. He's kind of the ominous, mysterious. He, he's 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 a good villain, and you know, Goldfinger is a smart villain. Right. Um, I mean, some of the stuff he does is just like really like, how did he get away with that? Like when he kills the uh, the troops, where he just like shouts, he's like, "Yo, she's in the helicopter. I'm gonna go get her." You got, and then he just turns around and shoots them all. And then people come around the corner. It's like that dude would be dead. Right? They they thought this guy was a commanding officer, and they had orders to go in into the building. But then they just all of a sudden change what they were doing because some random guy tells them to. Whatever, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this movie almost suffers from too many villains because you also then add pussy galore, which then, as we talked about. Um, she's almost like Catwoman. She's de- I mean, well, Cat- Catwoman like then turns kind of anti-hero. Right. Um, I don't know that she ever turns good, depending on the iteration. But yeah, she. Uh, you know, I think I think Pussy Galore is like, well, at least for this job, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be just straight up good by the end. Right. And, uh, and she was never overall menacing or bad. So there's that. And then I think they balanced it well because Goldfinger is not a physical threat, but our job is. But Goldfinger is an intellectual threat. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I. I actually hadn't put that together, but I think it's a very good point that Goldfinger is like the intellectually challenging villain for Bond, while Oddjob is the one that he's actually going to fight. And Goldfinger also being an, an, an intellectual understands Bond's power and can understand and see. Well, first of all, his plan is smart, but then you know, Bond figures it out himself instead of, again, instead of expositing, instead of showing right. his, his brilliance. You know, he. He is consistently smart the whole movie. I don't think anything he does deters the movie. Like, I, I don't think his downfall, like, especially when you get into, like, the Pierce Bronson bombs, the villains are definitely their own demise. Oh, yeah. Whether it's trusting somebody they shouldn't or letting Bond live or you know, doing that, like, leaving him on a laser table and then leaving the room and he gets, it out, gets out of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he's smart. I understand why he didn't kill him on the laser table because he thought other people had the information that he needed. But then why does he try to kill him in the vault? Is it because the plan's already in action and it won't matter at this point? Yes. My, my understanding, um, and it's not super clear on this. This is one of the things I have that it's just not super clear, which makes it kind of a negative, is I think that they were trying to just pin it on the actions of Bond. That Bond did this. Bond's responsible for this, not Goldfinger, okay. to kind of ship some of the blame. Uh, and so, and since nobody could get down there in sixty years, but also if you shoot him, you just or like if you if you kill him, if you lock him in the bowl or whatever, and if he doesn't have the keys, how can he stop it? That's the only thing that makes sense for keeping him alive and bringing him to Fort Knox is they were going to try to pin it on them. Right. Right. Yeah. Another question regarding James Bond franchise in general. I had this idea going into this that up until the Daniel Craig movies. All these movies were kind of like wonky spy movies that you're not supposed to take super seriously. There is the throwing the hat, um, which is kind of silly. But other than like that and him swimming up with like a duck on his head in the very, very beginning, there's not too much weird. Does it depend on the bond? Yes, it does depend on the bond, but it also depends on kind of the era of what things are going. After Goldfinger, they don't get they're they're really not serious anymore, okay. or they're like serious but also ridiculous. Like the next one is is Thunderball, 
And that one takes place largely underwater. Huh. And you know, all of a sudden you get these ridiculous eccentric villains. And Thunderball is not a great movie. I think that's the it's the only other bond I've seen um, because I think I got up to Thunderball and then stopped because Thunderball was just kind of bad. But yes, uh, especially after the Sean Connery era, you get to the Roger Moore era. Well, George Lazenby's in between there, which is a very serious movie from, from what I understand. But then you get uh, the Roger Moore, which kind of turns a little wonkier. And then you have your two Timothy Dalton ones, which are also kind of just wildly ridiculous. Okay. And then the Pierce Bronson ones are yes, that and then Craig reboots it to where they're dark and serious. Right. So, yes, like pretty much everything between Goldfinger and Casino Royale are that like hokey type of not quite like Benihana, <laughs> but um, but like, uh, yeah, I'd say like exactly what like Kingsman was trying to trope. Right. OK, cool. Yeah, I was just curious about that because I guess I had a predetermined idea of what an older Bond would be like. I liked in the movie seeing underneath Goldfinger's giant elaborate diorama because when Bond is looking through the building, you can see like the kind of mechanics of it all, how everything you know, yep. moves along. Yeah, it's one thing to see like, wow, all the walls are coming up, the windows are closing, the table's moving all over the place, but it's cool. Like They actually took all the steps. Some They had some architect come in here and just design all this. It was just funny yep. to, to, to think about that. And stemming from that, I loved the the line when the floor started moving and revealing that diorama thing. One of the, the bad guys, what is this, a merry-go-round? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, what the heck? That was, I yeah. love that line. I really only have one, one more note, and it speaks to both uh, the movie's creativity and as well as just loving Sean Connery in this role. But the scene where he escapes the cell is just perfect. It has to be somebody like Sean Connery that's confident and suave and has that smile that he could just walk to the back, walk up front, give a little smile, walk to the back, walk to the front, give a little smile, walk to the back, walk to the front, give a little wink, and then like do that like <laughs> the descending stairs. <laughs> and he does it in such a perfect way that you're like, okay, what's he up to? And like, I kind of, I kind of understand why this guy's going to go check on him. <laughs> exactly. Now that you say that, I think that's my favorite scene in the movie. I I, I think so too. <laughs> because well, he gives, he, he has that innocent, but like, what am I doing? Kind of smile and, and wave and then the wink yep. and then just like slowly lowers himself under the window. It's, it's honestly probably my favorite scene from a, from a Sean Connery Bond movie. Uh, the most iconic scene in this movie is when uh, when he's on the laser table and he says, do you expect me to talk? He's like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Yeah. But going back to the to the cell scene real quick, yeah, yeah. I, I want to see a shot from in the cell of like how he manipulates his way up into the ceiling <laughs> without being seen through the, through the little window. I think that would be cool, but also it doesn't really matter because he's just being silly enough, but also he's doing enough suspicious that the guy has to go up and be like, all right, what is he doing? Right. And then, you know, and then it's also funny to see kind of the follow-up next time he's in the cell. There's like yeah. seven people <laughs> with machine guns pointed at him. But the door was open. <laughs> right, what if he right. did something to beat him all up and then just walks out? I mean, that's why you put seven people with assault, <laughs> assault rifles at him. But That's true. It would be fun. It would be funny to see him actually try to get out of that. I think he's also like handcuffed to the bed. Right. But it would be funny to see like a cutaway and then you see like bullets and lights and, and then just like that. Out. And you see him just like and then you see him just like dragging the bed out of the cell. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's all the notes I have about the movie. Do you have any others? Half my notes are about how many women there are. I can't keep all the women straight. <laughs> uh, yeah. Other No, I I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I 
Um, it actually kind of made me want to watch more Bond movies. So I'll probably be doing that at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend... I think this movie's a goat. Um, if I was putting a Criterion collection together, I would put this one in. I wouldn't put all the Bond movies in. I wouldn't put Dr. No in. I'd put, I think I'd put From Russia With Love in for sure, but I'd, I would also put definitely put Goldfinger in. So yeah, I, w- I would say if you were interested, check out From Russia With Love. Golden Eye is really good. I hear On Your Majesty's Secret Service is good. It's Nolan's favorite Bond movie. Um, that means something. So I, I just I don't super know about the rest of them, but I'll let you know as I watch them. Cool. Uh, you think this movie's a goat? Uh, sure, because if we're just trying to go by like genre variety we haven't really done anything quite like this yet and if we're putting together our our own criterion you got to put in some spy thrillers so yeah this one for sure see yourself watching this in the future probably i i wouldn't be surprised if i went back started with the beginning and then just went through all the bonds in order of release cool next week's uh, next month's goats we're gonna be talking about nightmare before christmas and the original 1947 miracle on 34th street but as always before we move on robert is your favorite goat still rope yeah. Okay. Mine is still LA Confidential. Under our B plot, we could probably make this pretty quick. <laughs> Regarding last month's B plot on organi- organizing media, this comes from Joseph. What is a movie that you regret the way that you paid for it? So examples: uh, regret buying it instead of renting it, or renting it instead of buying it. Uh, which format you bought it? When you bought it? Um, seeing it in the theaters uh, as opposed to never seeing it, or or waiting, or a movie that you skipped out in theaters and wish you would have gone to see in the theaters uh we'll do kind of a back and forth i i'll start here i just i wish i would have bought 4k discs before i got a 4k player just because i mean i knew eventually i would get one and you know if i'm already going to spend 30 dollars on a new movie why not spend the extra five and get the 4k blu-ray instead of a blu-ray dvd yeah the last three dvds i bought were dunkirk about time and crazy stupid love dunkirk was because it was a new release at the time and i didn't have a blu-ray player and about time yep. and crazy stupid love where i saw them for five bucks at target but they also had the Blu-rays there for like seven fifty, So I wish I had gone for the Blu-rays because when I watched Crazy Stupid Love for my Ryan Gosling pod, I was like, man, this is just crap <laughs> with how it looks. I haven't watched a DVD in a long time, but I watched The Notebook on DVD for that. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I, I definitely noticed how crappy that was. So yeah, I, I, I wish I had bought those on Blu-ray. Um, like I've mentioned, though, I'm going to go back and buy all of Nolan's on Blu-ray. Honestly, Dunkirk and Interstellar are two of the best-looking 4Ks you'll ever see. I wouldn't be surprised if I got myself 4Ks instead of Blu-rays for all of Nolan's. Yeah, especially some of the visually heavy stuff. Not every not every movie needs a 4K. Right. I wish I rented uh, Batteries Not Included instead of buying it. I bought it because I typically just buy movies instead of renting, and that's the one where it's, you know, man, you, you, you spent money on this movie that you're never going to watch again. Yeah. And it wasn't cheap either. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem. That's why I typically tend to rent first or hope, cross my fingers for streaming. Um, that's fair. I only have two for something that I wish I would have seen in theaters uh, just off the top of my head. And that's La La Land and The Nice Guys. Ironically, I didn't notice it until just now. Two Gosling movies. Two Gosling 2016. Yeah, exactly. I guess I just didn't go to the movies much that year. Um Saw them both on Blu-ray eventually, or on HBO. I do wish I saw the Nice Guys in theaters, uh, but and I actually was planning on it. But my problem was uh, I was really busy the week it came out. I was you know working a lot, and well, and, and I think at the time I was also driving forty-five minutes two days a week to go help out a new store launch, and then I was working the five days at my store. 
So I was working seven days a week wow. um, for two, three weeks straight. And so, uh, so I didn't get around to seeing it. And I was literally like looking up showtimes to go see it like the day after it was pulled from theaters. Uh, I just wish I would have saw it in theaters only because I, I wish that movie got more money so I could get my sequel. Right. I'm unlike you in that I don't really care about steelbooks or extra 4Ks unless it's something that really deserves it like Lord of the Rings. I buy from the $5 bin a lot. There's like, there's a seller I found on eBay that sells stuff for uh, really cheap, but decent quality. And like, I got the Lion King for $4, the the original Lion King. Um, so yeah, I don't really care about additions as long as I have the movie and, and can watch it whenever I want because uh, physical media over streaming for me and kind of going with that. I wish there's some movies that you weren't, that you the only option wasn't uh, an expensive criterion. Christopher Nolan's following, I had to pay for the criterion or Last Temptation of Christ or most Wes Anderson movies, actually. Like, I, I like those movies and obviously I want to buy them. That's why I have them. Like, well, same thing for like, you know, Marriage Story. Right, that's the next criterion. one I was about to bring up. I wish. Probably Trial of the Chicago 7 and Mank will both be either Criterion or no physical release. Exactly. Like, I, I wish I could get a uh, 5 or $10 Marriage Story, Roma, uh, Irishman. Right. Trial of Chicago 7, that sort of thing. I don't want the Irishman, but it's okay. Yeah, uh, point yeah I, I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Um, point remains. It, it, same thing with Criterion. Like, It does kind of suck when your only option is that. Uh, and I love the Criterions, um, but it does it does suck when your only option is that. Like, I really love how like there's The Great Escape, which you can buy on Blu-ray for 6 bucks, or you can buy the Criterion, yeah. which is a better quality, and you'll have a lot more special features, and you'll have a lot more like actual taking care of that movie. You spend the extra money. Like I have the choice if I want to buy the Criterion or not. I, do, I wish there was more stuff like that. Um, I get stuff like you know Seven Samurai even, but uh, but not necessarily things like uh, like Blowout was one that I got, which doesn't necessarily need a Criterion release, um, but that's the only one it is. Right, like the Before trilogy, that feels like you should be able to walk into Walmart and get all three of those in one pack for fifteen bucks. But sure, it's, you have to pay sixty to ninety dollars on for a Criterion. Yep, I agree. Speaking of Criterion, I do regret uh, that I paid for Seven Samurai just on digital instead of buying the Criterion. Mm -hmm. I, I bought it when it was on sale on digital. It was like seven bucks, and the Criterion's always been like thirty-five. But still, you know, a movie that popular—it's it, loaded with bonus features too. It, it's, I recently rectified that because Criterion's a fifty percent off this month. Yes. So uh, I, I recently rectified that, and I picked up a Seven Samurai Criterion because I loved it so much. Yeah, I don't have anything else other than the crap I've seen in, th in theaters. So. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give two then. Um, I bought Capone. That movie sucks. And then the other one, this is a stupid one, Pacific Rim Uprising. I, I really enjoyed it and I wanted the 4K of it, but also it has one of the most beautiful steelbooks I've ever seen. And so I wanted the steelbook, but the steelbook was only at Target, not Best Buy, which means they only manufactured the steelbook to only have Blu-ray DVD combos, not 4K combos. So I wanted the steelbook and the 4K. So on day one, I went out and I bought both mm. and I put the 4K discs in the steelbook case and then I put the Blu-ray DVD in, a, in the 4K disc and resold it. Probably only like five bucks. Like, I could have I just bought the steelbook and waited until the 4K went on sale, but I didn't and I regret it. But the past is the, the past. The collector's uh, mindset right. kind of clouds your judgment sometimes. That's true. I will just storm through crap I saw in theaters and then you can do yours and that'll be that. The Predator, a movie 43. That one is actually, I have a, my birthday's in January and I like going to the theaters like as a like birthday thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, man, but only crap comes out in January. So like the two times that I remember like taking friends to go see a movie for my birthday was movie 43 and the Green Hornet. <laughs> Equalizer 2, that's a garbage movie. <laughs> uh, Baywatch, which had an amazing trailer 
like hilarious trailer that was an awful movie. Transformers, Age of Extinction, Blockers, Terminator Dark Fate, The Sitter, White Boy Rick, Dumb and Dumber 2, freaking Gangster Squad, <laughs> Good Day to Die Hard, all this crap. And Robert, I know you're going to take offense to this, but The Lighthouse, Boom. man. A uh, movie I hated that also was such an unwarranted theater experience. Oh, I, I'm glad I saw that in theaters because of the sound. Uh, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much seeing it for the first time at home. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll go through some. These are all going to be like just the last few years because up until a few years ago, I didn't go to the theaters for much other than like big franchise stuff. So Lucy, the crappy Scarlett Johansson movie, The Circle, the crappy Emma Watson movie, Joy, the crappy Jennifer Lawrence movie where she invents mops. Uh, the Intruder, The Beach Bum, Stuber, Jexy, Welcome to Marwin, Night at the Museum 3, It Chapter 2, and then two that I'm intentionally going to throw out there to ruffle feathers. Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. I agree with you on each of those. All right, Robert, let's move on to the spinoff. What's the one thing in pop culture you want to tell everybody to watch or to avoid? Yeah, so the other night uh, was Martin Scorsese's birthday. And I said, let me use this as a reason to watch some of his movies I haven't seen. And I went through and I realized I'd seen a higher percentage of his movies than I thought. But I watched Cape Fear and After Hours. I didn't like Cape Fear, so I'm not going to talk about that. But I loved After Hours a lot. Yeah, it kind of just explores the mundanity of everyday life while being a darkly hilarious romp and not like any Martin Scorsese movie that you've probably ever seen. Have you seen it? No. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's on HBO Max. Uh, that's where I watched it. Cool. Um, it's a high, high Check recommend. I gave it a five out of five stars. Um, put it all the way up on my Scorsese rankings behind only Silence Departed and Last Temptation of Christ. And I like a lot of Scorsese movies. So yeah, high praise. I don't really have a lot of specific stuff to say about it other than check it out. It's rated R. It has one disturbing thing. So just know that before going in. Other than that, it's is able to balance darkness and comedy really well. Yeah, it's, uh, I added it to my list. So I'm sure I'll check it out at some point. Gosh, I'm going to talk about Full Metal Jacket. And I, I didn't really like, wasn't impassioned to talk about this because I, uh, I, I just haven't seen much. I've been trying to do TV. I've been trying to do Raised by Wolves and Lovecraft Country so I can finally get those done so I can start Fargo. And I just haven't really watched much this week, but I did watch Full Metal Jacket while I was uh, uh, doing some work around the house um, that I could you know, pay attention to a movie still too. I, I don't love this movie, but I really like it. Um, specifically, I love the first hour of this movie. I think the first hour and the ending are incredible. It's the middle that I don't really like. There's two different movies going on here. I definitely prefer the first mm-hmm. one. And I like the second one okay, but I really love that first, uh, you know, up until the ending of the bathroom scene. Um, yeah. Everything at training camp is, is excellent. Um, and I almost wish it was just that for two hours. And then, you know, he could have made a sequel. I like make them actually two distinct movies. Yeah. Uh, this is my second favorite Kubrick after The Shining. Also love the first hour and I like the second hour a lot or however long it is. I think they're, like you said, two different movies, both saying the same thing. Um, but I think the first section does a better job of saying what it's trying to say. Though I do think like the last shot is the most meaningful shot of the movie. I liked it enough to say if you haven't checked it out, you should. Yeah. 
Well, uh, that's a wrap. A quick reminder that Sip Pop Rider's Room is part of Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media or by searching Studio DNA in your podcast player. If you're interested in writing for SifPop.com or you want to get in contact with us, maybe send us a question to explore during the B-plot, then you can email us at SifPop at Writer's Room or Writer's Room at SifPop.com. That's the one. Writer's Room at SifPop.com. That should be in your episode description for a quick link for you. And if you want to support the show, how about the cost we pay for out of Venmo or uh, pay for out of pocket, such as uh, fees, equipment, and rentals, you can Venmo me at Schweitcastle or you can DM me on Twitter. Twitter for my PayPal address. My uh, Twitter handle is also at Schweitcastle. Go ahead and give me a follow there or on Letterboxd. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Even if it's just the stars, you have no idea how much that helps. Word reviews are also excellent. Um, so that's a place you can connect with me. Robert, where can people connect with you and uh, talk to you about which James Bond movies you should actually watch and which ones you should definitely avoid. Yeah. Uh, Twitter at underscore Rob's thoughts, Instagram, Robert's thoughts and robertsthoughts.com as well as of course, Sif pop. Like I said, next month we're talking about uh, nightmare before Christmas and miracle on 34th street, the original. And next week I'm talking with uh, Evan. We're talking about Brink as a nostalgia movie and uh, should be lots of good stuff coming up. In the meantime, Robert, we got to get back to the writer's room. Mm-hmm.